You're listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It's not just radio, it's community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts on KOPN, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxham. On this week's show, we take a look at a new production of the children's play Corduroy on stage at the University of Missouri's Studio 4 Theatre, and that starts next Wednesday on June the 19th. But first, it's time to return to the visual arts and a new show that opens officially tonight at the Mont Mini Gallery at the Boone History and Culture Centre. Small Art, Big Stories is a show made up of 17 miniature exhibitions by 17 different Columbia area artists and here to tell us more about the show is the show's curator Kate Gray and two of the artists featured in the show painter Marilyn Cummings and miniaturist artist Bradley Meinke. I'm so excited to have you all on the show welcome. Thank you. So glad to be here. Thanks, Thank Diana. You. Kate, another fabulous show under your curator's belt, Small Art with Profound Narratives. It's so you. <laughs> <laughs> Where did the inspiration for the show come from? It, I started looking around at um, how the opportunities, uh, what the opportunities were in our city. And we have a great city, support the arts, fantastic. But where are those opportunities where people can do a solo show and show their work? I think the other thing that was inspiring to me was this idea of someone coming up with a body of work and then being able to tell a story about that. So many times I, I would be included as, as an artist and a gallery director to walk into um, a gallery or a museum and look at a piece and not really understand the background, the story that it has. And all great work tells a great story. And so I thought, let's bring that to life on the walls, on the floors for our 3D pieces and give our artists at all levels an opportunity to show their work. And then I thought, well, Gosh darn it, that's kind of broad. Let's narrow, let's make this game a little more fun. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, well, and I just seen a miniature show somewhere, and I love them. I think they're fantastic. And so I thought, what if we did a small, all the work could be 8 by 10 or under. The artists would paint or create three to seven pieces, which would give them an opportunity to make a statement with their work and then write one narrative that talks about how it all goes together. And so I thought this would be super exciting. And I felt like a show like this would be a unique opportunity for our community to go out and see a range of artists' work, people creating artwork from different perspectives, too. I thought that that would be interesting, plus the idea of collecting artwork. Lots of times, art can be a little expensive for some of us, and uh, I know I'm included. I'm like, oh, I love that. Let me look at the checkbook, um, so to speak. And, uh, you know, you have to, to weigh those things. But I thought the opportunity to start collecting work on a smaller scale, because the miniature work would more than likely have a smaller price tag. And so it made the whole opportunity and the idea of the show come together as being a very inclusive opportunity for people in our community as well as our artists to show off what they're doing and their passion and their love and tell a great story. Now you have some random numbers in there. You have 17 mm-hmm. artists, you have 8 by 10 sizes and 3 to 7 works. So how did all of those numbers come together? It's magic. <laughs> 
I'm not a mathematician. Let's <laughs> just. And uh, I'm, I'm a firm believer of, okay, put it out there and then see what happens, what comes to you. And um, so um, Bethany Irons, our assistant gallery director, we um, took a look at those artists in the community that we felt had this love, drive, and undying passion for their work. The creative process was who they are. They were at every turn working to make their work better, stronger, promote sell and we were like who are those people and so she came up with her list I came up with mine that's how we came up with 17 the size had to do with what I felt would be a comfortable size for framing and I know also what size our pedestals are and gosh darn it they'd fit on top of that <laughs> and uh, so that's how it all kind of narrowed down it got a little strategic after a while and so was it was it an invitational rather than a kind of a jury selection? It was an invitational. We curated the artist and we wanted a range, like I mentioned, we wanted a range of different points of view, ages, time that people had spent in their path within becoming a professional artist. Uh, for example, I have one artist that's been seriously in the throes of art for about a year. And uh, some people that have been doing art, showing art in, uh, for 30, 40 years. So it's, it's a fantastic opportunity to see that range again. Marilyn, you have six paintings in the show, plus a quilt, the last quilt that your grandmother, Helen, designed and pieced together. And your grandmother was also an artist. So tell us about your grandmother, because she's the basis for your story. Thanks, Diana. Um, my grandmother, Helen Cummins, probably wouldn't call herself an artist, but as I look back over what I remember of her, I consider her to be that. But she was a very strong farm wife, farm woman that, you know, would cook up meals for 15 workers who came to, you know, put the harvest together and, you know, pies and everything when, when uh, the farm was going that way. But when I look at things that she created, the, the, the her, her knack with plants, which is a theme that runs through my paintings, and many quilts, but this particular quilt my mother found in a trunk long after my grandmother was gone, and it was just the top of the quilt, and it happens to be called The Pattern is Grandmother's Flower Garden. And looking at it, she had to select colors and patterns, and it, uh, the more I studied it, the more I could just see the intricacy of what she had picked from these fabrics. It wasn't random, and then I just found it beautiful. So the story of that is on the wall next to my paintings, but then I found out a PS to the story that isn't on the wall. My mother reminded me that the person that my mother had finished the quilt in terms of putting the, some flowers were missing along one edge. My other grandmother did that, and they're purple. It's purple fabric, and it's the dress my mother wore to the hospital the day she gave birth to me. <laughs> so if you see the quilt, which is on exhibit with my paintings, the purple flowers on one side came from the, the my mother's dressing gown the day she went to give birth. And then another lady did the hand quilting of it. So three, three wonderful women were involved in putting that quilt together, and uh, it's just very special to me. So one of my paintings, actually, is just taking one of those hexagons and doing my own twist on it with uh, mixed media. Now, your, your exhibit is called Heavenly Garden, Remembering Helen, which is a reference to St. Therese of Lisieux. How does St. Therese tie into the story of you and your grandmother? There's a lovely connection there, too. 
Thanks. Well, growing up, my grandparents lived right across the road on our farm. And once in a while, my parents would get a little time off. And we'd, my sister and I would spend the evening with my grandparents. And they always said the rosary every single night before we went to bed. So we would participate in that. But I wasn't aware of any particular saint that my grandmother was devoted to. Fast forward many, many years when I'm living on the East Coast, and I become acquainted with a saint I hadn't heard of, which was St. Teresa, known as the Little Flower. And I found an old print of, of her in a shop, and I bought it, and I learned more about her. Moved back to Missouri, am given my grandmother's prayer book, and I opened it one day, and a little pink piece of paper fell out, and on it was written the prayer to St. Teresa in my grandmother's handwriting. And so I, it just kind of completed this circle. It's a small thing, but um, to honor that, I made my own version of an icon of St. Teresa that is one of the paintings in the show. And the reference Heavenly Garden is from... Uh, That's from the poem, yes. St. Yeah. Teresa, before she passed away from tuberculosis at the age of 24, I believe, as a nun, she said that her, her job would be to be in heaven sending down a shower of roses or a shower of flowers. So devotees pray to her to, ask to send me a rose to say that you're answering, helping me answer my prayers. And um, that is part of that prayer is the heavenly garden. So everything, every little thing in the, in the show, whether it's a flower vase, my grandmother's shears, um, the quilt, they all tie into that garden. And your grandmother passed away when she was relatively young. She was only 68. Correct. And you were just in eighth grade. Is that correct? Yes. So how, uh, how do you think that she affected you as an artist or influenced your artistry over the years? Well, at the time, um, at that time, I was, uh, you know, an amateur artist. I drew all the time, painted all the time. My parents were very supportive of that. It also was a way to keep me occupied. If I was at some boring conservation dinner at age eight, you know, give me a piece of paper and a pen, and I could sit there and be quiet and uh, and draw. So it's a it's a long distance, like I say, sort of relationship. But I do respect what she did with her farming, her giant garden, her flowers, her sense of decor. I have her fiesta pieces. They were the start of my giant vintage fiesta collection. So, and I, and I do think that passed down through the genes. I mean, her, her husband, my grandfather, when he was a young man, played mandolin in a house band. And, but never, never, ever did I hear or see him play music. But I'm musical also, which comes from both sides of the family. So I just think by being around, I was very fortunate to have both sets of grandparents most of my young life growing up right there near me. And uh, learned so much from all of them, cooking, sewing, and I consider those to be art. If you put love and, and care into the most everyday things, that's being an artist. Right. Bradley, I have wanted to have you on the show for ages as I am fascinated by the subculture that echoes your artistic passion, the world of dollhouse furniture, miniature items and interior design. Take us on a tour of that world. Well, it is a fascinating, diverse place. Many do uh, still refer to it as dollhouse miniatures. Uh, I personally refer to it as scale miniature work. I am a member of the International Guild of Miniature Artisans, which there are thousands of us worldwide. Uh, we each specialize in a very minute, uh, and I use that term intentionally, uh, a minute focus. Uh, mine happens to be country furniture, 1790 to 1850. And I put myself working in hardwoods, cherry, maple, uh, some walnut. 
and I put myself in a mindset that I'm the itinerary, itinerant uh, cabinet maker, and I may be the cabinet maker on a plantation, or I might have been the furniture maker in a small village or a town. And rather than being uh, having my work been created in a, a fine furniture center, such as Philadelphia or New York, uh, mine might be an outlying village and still be inspired by fine furniture pieces, but yet I'm interpreting it on my own uh, as a country cabinet maker might. Scale miniatures have been around uh, since ancient Egypt. The pharaohs had uh, miniature vignettes in their tombs. So fast forwarding, you know, to those, uh, uh, the amazing creations, the Dutch baby houses in the Netherlands. Uh, if you saw the, on PBS, the uh, movie, The Miniaturist, that is based on an actual cabinet house. Petronella Ortman, I believe was her name. And then, so fast forwarding into the mid-70s is probably where I got my start. The bicentennial, there was a push uh, nationwide on handcrafts and crafted items here. And so, of course, the Philadelphia Exposition in 1876, and then 100 years later, we have 1976. So many of those crafts that came about were revived. And I think in my household, I was fortunate there wasn't a craft that escaped escaped mine uh, our household uh, my mom was very indulgent I was the <laughs> the youngest child uh, I have two older sisters but uh, I was allowed to dabble and I made candles and macrame and sand painting and um, uh, quilting and uh, so you know my mom used to joke and tell her friends that uh, my son can cut <laughs> more uh, one-inch squares than anybody I've ever known. So in our old farmhouse, I was often uh, just kind of left to my own devices uh, upstairs. But back to the whole uh, uh, field of miniatures, uh, from the 70s on, people uh, became interested in the hobby and recreating family homes or vignettes or antique pieces that they had grown up with. So there were publications at the time, uh, one being Miniature Collector, which came out in 1977. And I would read that as a child, and I would see that there were adults actually making a gainful living uh, by creating miniature furniture. And that had always kind of planted the seed. And so uh, moving to 2010, I was in a, a horrible corporate job that had literally sucked the life out of me. And I went back to my workbench and kind of went back to creating and felt my blood pressure lowering and felt this whole revival of creation within myself. So tell us about the works that are in the show, because as you corrected me, it's not just doll's house pieces. People collect miniature items and maybe create their own vignettes or just collect certain items or put them under little glass cases. It's not like a whole doll's house. So what have you got in the show? Well, in my show, I have uh, three glass vitrines uh, that I'm a big fan of upcycling. So those are recycled uh, glass vitrines that feature items. The one called Bowl Me Over uh, features one of my 2016 submissions. 
I did not make it in 2016. I had to reapply, and I was finally accepted into the guild in 2017 with an additional five pieces of perfect furniture. Some of the comments that came back from the jury on the 2016 is like, well, there was one speck of glue and one cat hair. And the snarky side of me wanted to say, you're lucky you only got one cat hair. I have... Makes it very authentic. Exactly. I have a pair of Siamese who are very active in helping me with uh, shipping, receiving, packing, unpacking, those kinds of things. So, yeah, only one cat hair was kind of... Maybe the hair was too big. was shocking, Maybe yeah. Maybe it, it was a little too big. Um, wasn't scaled you know, down. And there are people who specialize in making miniature scale animals. Uh, we, we talked earlier a little bit, Diana, that the, the scale art world can f- uh, feature... Oh my gosh, the uh, the specialties are as myriad as you can even imagine. Someone who just specializes in uh, sailors' valentines uh, made out of actual tiny seashells. I just recently encountered her. She's a, a wonderful woman. My specialty again is country furniture. I'm I'm anticipating applying again for artisan in miniature upholstery. My background is textiles and fabrics, and I love love doing miniature upholstery. But I've got friends who specialize in and flowers and trees and and cats and pets and sometimes the pets are made or they're sculpted they'll sculpt the form and then they'll hand apply uh, like goat hair or different fibers fiber by fiber by fiber to make the the fur look like it's actually moving um, <laughs> food furniture lighting exterior you name it it can be created if you can imagine it or if you've owned it in full size in your world and that's always um like the joke is kind of what is full size what is real size what is our size anything you can see in a full-size household would be game we need to do a whole show just on you, Bradley. I, I, I mean that. I really want to have you okay. come back and do a whole segment. Because right. this is a world that just fascinates me completely. But, Kate, let's talk about some of the other works that are in the show. Um, I know you can't. You're not allowed to have favorites. I must say I was very smitten with Kirsty Buchanan's work. I loved the arc of the story that she took us on. Tell us about Kirsty's work. Kirsty's work um, is fantastic. She she is also a lover of fabrics and fiber and uh, fashion and all of those sorts of things. And then for her to take that love and put it on a two-dimensional uh, platform, I think, was really thrilling. The collage aspect of it, the infusion of photography with texture and the layering of pattern to tell a rich story about her personal growth and path was just is beautifully done. I love the fact that there's humor in the show. Yeah. Don Asby's sculptural works are just are just beautiful and a complete joy. Mm-hmm. Mike Seat's very meta collection of viewers viewing viewers viewing art. Right, brilliant. Uh, love that. <laughs> Catherine Mitter's just beautiful mm-hmm. light filled landscapes. I'd not seen before Kim Suntrup's mm-hmm. a really exquisite watercolor ink and copper wire mm-hmm. birth charts. Yes, really, really beautiful. Right. Bradley and Marilyn, have you, you, have, well, you haven't seen the show yet because it only opens officially tonight. Right, I've only seen bits and pieces as I we were setting up. I snuck in, so I got uh-huh. to see it earlier this week. But it's it's just can't wait. a stunning collection. Well, thank you. What do you gravitate towards? When I walk in the show, I, it, it, was a, it was a great experience to walk in with all the work unhung. And then to look at it, it was like little treasure chests of people's work and you wanted to like dig in there and you want to read the story i'm like okay back off you just got to get this hung up so we can like experience it and so 
I also wanted to make sure that when somebody walks in, you have realistic against abstract. So there's a balance, a push and pull in the in this in the space itself. I think one of the artists, Nancy Katzman, she is uh, she has come from teaching preschool and into the world of art. And her idea was to allow the adolescent to play with her work. And so that was another one of the stories that I thought was so amazing within the work. As far as uh, a favorite or one I gravitate to, yeah, I can't, I can't say. They're all, all spectacular. I will say that um, Kim's work and the nature of the fact that it comes from birth charts and or locational star connections and then that informs the work itself and the fact it is so graphic to me is something that feels very fresh and then that applied texture is absolutely breathtaking so there's so many different work that's in there you know Martha Daniels work who just captures landscapes and and nature in a beautiful way we've got Shannon Salder's work it's always amazing Zoe Hawk did a collection of three pieces and they just are like light and life and they just start lift you up. So the show is on at the Mont Mini Gallery. It opens officially this afternoon from 5 till 7 p.m. and everybody is welcome to go along. And then the show stays up on the walls through July the 28th. So there's lots of chances to go and see it. And you can see the Mont Mini Gallery is open from Wednesday to Saturday from 11 till 4.30. And I think on Sundays from 12 till 4.30. Yes. Diana, one other thing I would say about the show, it's a great show to, to bring kids to because it's so diverse and it would be a great family fun excursion. It, it has, there's so much opportunity for conversation about it. And I do love that every artist has their own statement there so that you can look at the work and then you can see what they were going for with that set of work. And there are some really profound moments. I mean, your grandmother's story, Marilyn, is just so beautiful. And Thank that you. journey is lovely that you take us on. And to have your grandmother's quilt there is so special. It just is that, uh, that little, little cherry on top of the icing of the cake. Yeah. It's delightful. And Bradley, I could just look at your work for hours. <laughs> You know, they're just so detailed. There's so much in there. The Attic Treasures, is yes. that the one? You need a half an hour at least just to look at that one piece. I, I didn't do a final count, but I think there's well over 100 pieces <laughs> inside of it. Well, and I want to thank Kate for, for the idea and for inviting us. Um, it was a great inspiration. I did do all new pieces for it. I think some artists put things together and built a story, and others of us created new things. And I appreciate Thank you for the inspiration. And I love that gallery in that there's so much space. I mean, we each get our own little space to tell our story. We're not mixed in together. But anyone who comes this evening or any time to see the show, there's so much room to back off, look at the work, mill around. So I hope everybody will come to the reception tonight or come back another time to see it. And admission to the gallery is free of charge, so no excuse for not going. Check out the fake news show while you're there in the main part of the History Centre. Kate, Bradley and Marilyn, thank you so much for being on the show. Bradley, I'm having you back at some point to talk about the world of All miniatures. Right. All right. <laughs> you're listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM, KOPN Columbia. And after a short break, we'll be back looking at the new production of the children's play Corduroy and talking to its director, Dr Matt Salzberg. Don't go away. 
Welcome back to Speaking of the Arts. The engaging and heartwarming story of a stuffed teddy bear who is missing a button on his green corduroy overalls and is waiting patiently for love on a department store shelf was written over 50 years ago. Don Freeman's picture book has been so abidingly popular that it has never gone out of print and is rated as one of the teacher's top 100 books for children by the National Education Association. It was also one of the first mainstream children's books with African-American leading characters. The story of Corduroy was made into a short TV movie in the early 1980s and has been animated a couple of times, but it was only last year, as Corduroy turned 50, that renowned children's playwright Barry Kornhauser adapted Corduroy's department store adventures into a play. And here to tell us about the play is its director, Matt Salzberg, assistant professor in the Bobby Byron Theatre Programme at Salisbury University in Maryland, as well as the vice president of the Association of Theatre Movement Educators. Welcome back to the show, Matt. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Now, it's almost exactly a year since you were last on the show when you were here to talk about a play called Dance on Bones, a futuristic world infused by jazz, creation myths and a planet at war with its people. (laughs) And now you're back with a super adorable children's play. That is quite a transition. Well, you know, in some ways a director directs. I think that I was asked by another individual that was interviewing me for Corduroy about what are the hallmarks of Matt Salzberg production. And I think both Dance on Bones and Corduroy have those things which are highly physical, full of spectacle, and have a lot of music, but also have a lot of heart and depth to them. So first of all, tell us, what have you been doing since last summer? Did you Have you moved in what the last year? What haven't I been doing? <laughs> <laughs> I have lived in, um, it's been a while, I'm an alum of the university. I got my PhD here eight years ago now. So I haven't actually lived in Colombia for uh, seven years. But for the past two years, and continuing, I teach at Salisbury University in Maryland, as you said. And so that's where I've been. Um, and in, that t- in my time there, I directed... Another farce, The uh, One Man, Two Governors, which was a, uh, an adaptation of an 18th century Italian committee del arte comedy called Servant of Two Masters that was um, originated in the West End and it was on Broadway and won James Corden a Tony Award. Uh, and I directed Jesus Christ Superstar and um, Peter and the Starcatcher. Those are the shows I've done in Maryland since I've been here last. And the Comedia dell'arte, which you referenced, we uh, were talking to uh, Trent Rash from Stevens College a couple of weeks ago, and they have their summer theatre institute yes. going on, and that is one of the one of the evenings, one of the lessons they give, mm-hmm. because it's really the the basis for slapstick and physical it is. comedy and it, physical. It, it, it really is. I mean, you know, these you know, you have these silly contemporary plays. And I mean, silly in the best way. I don't mean that in a pejorative way. You have these silly contemporary plays with really ancient pedigrees, which even Comedia goes back even farther, really, to to the how comedy. Did Developed in ancient Rome, so. Right. So, what made you want to tell Corduroy's story? Well, there's there's several things about it. I mean, the first thing is I ha- I hadn't thought about Corduroy in a well over thirty years. Um, did you read it as a child? I did, and 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 that's what I was reminded of. I had forgotten until I was approached about the production here uh, that when I was in, but I remembered quickly when I was in kindergarten. Whenever it was my turn to choose the book that our teacher read to us, I always chose Corduroy. And I think, you know, Corduroy has a lot to say about, you know, um, Lisa, the young girl in the play, has the line, I love you just the way you are. This play, the book and the play have a lot to say about acceptance and and having a sense of belonging and a sense of home and this idea of friendship and kinship. But the play 
was adapted in such a really smart way. Or the book was adapted into the play in such a really smart way, is what I mean to say. Um, because of the farcical elements, because of the slapstick and the physical humor. And also, coupled with that, as you mentioned, um, Corduroy being one of the first books to feature, you know, the, hum- the human, the Lisa and her mother are African-American. And the idea that young folks can come to the theater, for me, directing Corduroy has been feels like such an enormous responsibility because it will it very it will very likely be the first time many of our young folks have been to the theater many of our young audience members have been to the theater to which to me is a huge responsibility and because of the nature of corduroy for me as an artist and as a teacher and a director representation matters and and the the stories we tell and whose stories we tell and what kinds of actors play what kinds of characters and so young folks can come to corduroy and a lot of young folks can a lot of different young folks can see themselves in the play people that look like them that represent them um, and i think that's really powerful so the story starts off with a cuddly teddy bear feeling bereft and lonesome on a shelf in mm-hmm. the toy department of freeman's department store and now we're all sitting comfortably tell us the story of corduroy well i mean it really isn't much beyond that it's uh the play happens really in two different worlds so there's the initial scene where uh, where we see lisa and her mother in the in the department store in the toy department and she wants the bear lisa's mother won't buy it for her just yet and so um what the play does that the book didn't do is the play explores lisa's life at home so the play alternates every other scene it's a scene in the department store of corduroy trying to find his button hilariously chased by the night watchman um very 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 funny the night watchman and at least in our production has become sort of a uh, a hilarious scooby-doo villain i mean it's so funny the way that it, that the night watchman has been characterized in the play and then alternating with that we see different scenes of lisa at home trying to sort of finagle her mother <laughs> to get her to buy the bear and we see the sort of sweet relationship Lisa and her mother have, um, and then how that extends to Lisa's relationship with Corduroy. There's another element to the play, though, that's not in the books at all, which are there are two clowns. And they're not dressed like with big feet and white paint on their face. They're actually sort of dressed like custodial staff in a department store. And then they become, in each department store location, they become whatever, part of whatever that is. So in the toy store, they become toys. In home furnishings, one of them becomes a table. Um, I won't give too much more away than that. And they move the set around. So they have all, then among the two of them, we have this really silly, funny business of them moving the set from one location to the next and how they, how they get it out and their sort of relationship. And they don't speak, so it's clowning in the, in the ancient art of clowning, more in, like, um, in the sense of a Shakespearean fool, that kind of acting a fool, kind of like that. So, the, I mean, the book is literally a 90-second read. I, went, I thought, well, I'll go to the library yes. and I'll check, I'll check it, really it out. Is, yeah. But I didn't check it out because it really took me 90 yeah. seconds. Yes, <laughs> yes, for adult, yes. And, and you know, and, and Don Freeman, it's an illustrated, and Don Freeman, of course, illustrated himself, the original. So that was a big move by Barry Kornhauser to, to choose this book and turn it's, it it's into really, a Yeah, it's really been expanded. And, and, you know, it's really funny. So Corduroy, we see him in, um, you know, it, it maintains the going from the toy department to the bed. We also see Corduroy in, uh, so the bed is in home furnishings. We also see him in a, the appliance department. Uh, there's some very funny business with a stove in there that happens to the night watchman. I won't give too much away. We see him... And the toiletries department, 
there might be some shaving cream and <laughs> funny business there. And then we also see him in the basement and shipping and receiving. And, and in that scene, we see the classic bit of Corduroy and the Night Watchman popping out of all the different crates. And you, exact, you're laughing because exact, right. it's, it's, these, it's this shtick we all know that's been um, deployed so smartly in this adaptation. It did seem like in the original book that, that you know he only goes to one area of the department. So he just goes to bedding and he tries he does, to pull yeah. the, one of the little buttons, buttons off, off the, the mattress. mattress. And we have that, but then there was a lot more. It seemed like yeah. there was a lot more in a whole department store where he could go and that the book really was yeah because it is a two-act play it's with intermission it's about an hour and 45 minutes but it is a two-act play so it really does expand and then you have the scenes with lisa and her mother um in their home and those those are more realistic component than the department they are they are yeah in some ways as a director it almost feels like directing two different plays because over here i'm directing clowns and over here i'm directing real not realism but real people in a real location and and more of the real messages of the play are in the lisa and her mother Um, part I would say in there and then in the very end in the coming together of Lisa and the bear and also the sort of heart we see. It's not really pointed at in the script, but I think that the way that Lisa treats the bear and and sort of the kindness, she's learned that from her mother. Mm -hmm. And that's not, you know, I think theater often operates in in the best ways when it's metaphorical and poetic rather than arrows pointing at things. Right. Um, And I think that's not... It's not pointed at, but I think it's really there that we see this wonderful behavior that Lisa's learned from her mother. Going back to when you read it as a child, now, as an adult, you can you can see the book and see the play and you can see the messages that are in it. But I mean, as a child, we, we're not analyzing those kind of messages. Do you right. remember what you loved about it? <laughs> I don't. That's, <laughs> that's the hardest thing is I, I, don't, I, just, I just, I can picture, I have a sort of very visual memory. I can picture taking it off the shelf. I can picture the book. Of course, it was hardcover. I, I never owned it either. I, I bought it to have it as reference and with work with the designers and everything. And so, of course, it's, a, it's just a paperback. But I, I think um, knowing myself, understanding the message of Corduroy, I have to believe it had something to do with finding a sense of belonging. And and that, you know, being it isn't all about being perfect. Corduroy is right, missing a button and right. he feels bad and about that, says, but she loves she, him anyway. And she does put the button on, but she says, you know, she says, I want you to know, you know, I'm going to put this button on because you'll be more comfortable because your strap's hanging off, you know, you're, but I want you to know I'm not putting it on because I think you're, there's something inadequate about you. Right. You know, I'm, I'm putting it on so you'll be comfortable, but I love you with, even without this button. I'm just doing this so you're comfortable. In the intermission, I was reading about it, the production somewhere else, and the um, the mannequins or the clowns, they stay on the stage during intermission and the kids can come and help. We're not going to do that part. <laughs> for, ver- for various logistical reasons, um, the show is so... It's such a sensor- sensorial feast and just the nature of the way our stage is set up and just for safety reasons and to give the, the actors a, a bit of a time to get water and everything. We're not going to quite do that part, but I, um, I assure you that the um, play is no less engaging without it. There's very funny parts. There are parts where the actors may interact a little bit with the audience. I don't want to give too much away, but... There's all kinds of silly stuff that's happening. So. Now, the actor playing Corduroy does not have a huge number of words to remember. He is only it, is has... just two? He only... Well, he, he only says two words in the entire show. Which are button. Button and, and friend. friend. Yeah. But he has to deliver them in so... With so many different emotions. Intentions. Yeah, right. sure. Yeah. 
<laughs> Talk a and that's something about we've that. talked about. You know, it's it's as I've gone through with uh, Murphy Ward as the actor playing Corduroy, and as Love I've gone, Murphy yes, Ward. yes, oh, he's awesome. So he's playing Corduroy. Perfect choice. Um, and as I've gone through with him, we've talked about. It may sound funny to talk subtext in a, a farce version of corduroy but we had to just say like if you if you actually were saying more words than button what are you saying here and that's how we sort of worked that button and friends said many many times now although this is not a musical there is a score of background music yes so we have have a choice on that or can you work with mizzou composers and create your own well it was something that when i as part of being hired to direct corduroy i asked for um i always do things with music i can't imagine a play or anything without music so and and again it's the traditional thing of the little comic underscoring of the clowning punctuating things some things more through composed and so um, we have New York City based musician and music director and performer and composer Brett Christofferson who's composed original music tailored to the staging so this production it's only written for this production. So we've had original music created just for this production. And he, like you, has flown in to be kind of a guest. Well, I, actually, actually he's, a, he's a, originally from Mexico, Missouri, and he, and he is moving back to the area, but he actually literally did get here just from New York. Describe yes. the music for us. It's fun and it's light and it's, you know, do, 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 you know, that kind of, you know, I'm, 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 I did his music no justice by that <laughs> do, 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 do I just did. But it's that thing that underscores, it's, I always seem to be, to be referencing Scooby-Doo, but it's actually something that I feel like a lot of people know and actually is a great sort of representation of comic bits and and how they would you know when they would walk with their feet really fast and they would have like little twinkle toes and they would go you know that kind of stuff is is what's happening Mm -hmm. in the yeah the play was first produced by the children's theater company in minneapolis with peter brosius as the artistic director who said of the playwright barry cornhouse that he is a genius at the setup planting it brilliantly and having it pay off again and then again i think he understands that theater is really life is visual and sonic and his work comes alive in so many ways mm-hmm. so one of the trademarks is balancing that playfulness with the serious dealing in this instance with loneliness not being perfect it's about friendship and determination things that children really face Mm -hmm. in in their lives is Kornhauser a playwright you follow or was this kind of a one-off opportunity no I had never encountered his work before this is really the first what we would call TYA meaning theater for young audiences play that I've directed I've directed farces before, but never a, a not a TYA production. Um, so I'm I'm new to his work, but I'm very much enjoying it. <laughs> <laughs> now it is aimed at kids three and up. So yes. to be honest, it's not on my summer viewing radar because I feel like I'm maybe a little don't have any kids. Oh I no, <laughs> it's for it's for all audiences. No, because I'll tell you what, when you see the play, adults will laugh as much as the children. Now maybe for slightly different reasons. Adults, maybe perhaps more so because they'll have moments of recognition of, oh, I've seen that comic bit before. Oh, of course they did that funny thing. But I I would say that, and I think that's one of the reasons why the play is good. One of the issues with, and what makes Barry Kornhauser's work stand out is, unfortunately, even well-meaning playwrights who write for young audiences, the plays can lack sophistication or talk down to the to the young audiences and corduroy does not do that it's very smart and sophisticated i always say it's sophisticated in its silliness 
Now, you mentioned Murphy Ward as being, he's playing Corduroy. Who else is in the play? Well, Dr. David Crespi, who's on faculty at the university, he's playing a very, very funny and very bedraggled night watchman. He's very funny. That's a star performer. Yes. (laughs) And then Elise is played by uh, Daisha Slater, who's also a student at the university. And her mother's being played by Zaria Moore, who's also a student at the university. And then the clowns are Mariah Ariza and Matt Schmidt deal. I definitely have seen Murphy Ward in several things, and he is a phenomenal He's a very actor. smart actor. Mm-hmm. He's a very smart actor, yeah. Now, I know two of your interest areas are the Suzuki and Viewpoints methods of acting, mm-hmm. both of which focus on an actor's physical discipline. Expand for us on what those two methods are. Well, they're really quite different and come from two different traditions, but they've been put together by American theater director Ann Bogart. Not, not, not that they're, it's not a mashup, it's they're, they're taught discreetly, but side by side. Um, the Suzuki method of actor training is really was developed by a Japanese director, Tadashi Suzuki, as a way of being able, for him and his co-artists being Japanese, to approach the staging and the performance of Western texts, particularly the ancient, ancient Greek tragedies in Shakespeare. Um, viewpoints really came from Mary Overly from uh, the world of uh, postmodern dance. And um, whereas Suzuki is very sort of tyrannical and uh, it, it very, very rigid in terms of, of what it asks for, Viewpoints is really playful. So it gives the, it, it enables a sort of physical intelligence for the actor. And that idea of physical acting and athletic directing, I think I read, that's really your hallmark. So mm-hmm. that's that comes from that background in Suzuki and viewpoint training. I, w- I would say that's part of it. I mean, I we didn't do any Suzuki or viewpoints outright in this production, but I think that, you know, we have, we unfortunately, we suffer um, in our culture from the sense of the, um, that the mind is separate from the body. And what we know by <laughs> literally that is not true. So I think that I'm drawn to things where the, the idea that thinking is doing and doing is thinking and that the whole body is thinking. Now, I know, um, <coughs> as you said, you have a long history with Columbia. You got your PhD at Mizzou and you were also a founding member of Talking Horse Productions and you directed Greenhouse Theatre Project's production of Pia Gint mm-hmm. a couple of years ago. And one of the things that I do I do love about a Greenhouse is the physicality of their performances. I think that really makes them stand out amongst the theatre that I yes. see here. Um, so that really ties in with your interest. I could see when I read that how, how connected you would have been with those Well, Greenhouse and also one thing I love too is the sort of site-specific nature or site-responsive or whatever you want to, however you want to phrase it, but... Piergent was the one they did on the rooftops behind yes, Fretboard Coffee. So as, as a director... What is the hardest part about creating a production, bringing something to life? <laughs> Everything. Everything. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking the other day, doing a play like Corduroy, meaning a farce, it's such a detailed way you interact with costume and scenery. I always say my degrees and my experiences in theater, but really what my credentials in are problem-solving, how to work with other people, collaboration, leadership, sort of all of those things. And so I think that it's it's a beautiful challenge is sort of the, the negotiation of having a production come to life and the beautiful way you work with other people. The director may be in charge, quote unquote, but you don't do it alone. Absolutely not. Right. And I guess you need to give actors the freedom to it, to explore their own personalities and, within And designers, too. Role. I mean, you know, right. it's not, you know, if no one wants to go into a process as a designer and say, and I want this and I want, you know, like, eh, you know, sometimes there are things that the play requires and that's 
we're, you know, we all face that. I, as the director, I face that too. I had Mark Vital, a costume designer, on the show a few weeks ago, but he, I think he mentioned that he's not designing for this. You have a student designer who's working on the costumes. She's, she's right? a graduate student in, in the textile department, <clears throat> Abby Romine, yes. And so any surprises in the costuming that she chose? Well, we sort of refigured how the clowns are conceptualized from the original production, and um, she has had a lot of really fun ideas about what their function is in each department store location, as I was sort of mentioning earlier. Anything else we should add about the play before we close? Well, I would say um, it's for all ages to come and have a really good time. So I should get over the fact that I don't have children and come I think you. I think everybody <laughs> should come. I think everybody will have a good time. It's fun for three-year-olds. It's fun for 93-year-olds. Thank you so much, Matt. The play Corduroy opens at MU Theatre's Studio 4 next Wednesday, June the 19th, and runs through next Sunday. Evening performances start at 6pm, plus there are three matinee performances at 1pm, and that's next Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. You can get tickets by going to theatre.missouri.edu or by giving them a call at 573-882-PLAY. Tickets cost 16 for adults or 10 for under-16s. And I should add that the matinee performance on June the 19th is already sold out, according to the website. So congratulations, already a sellout date before the show starts. Thank you, Matt. You are listening to Speaking of the Arts, and before we hand the airwaves over to Terry Gross and Fresh Air, I have a list of arts events coming up that would like to find their way into your diaries. This afternoon from 4 till 5 p.m., you can learn about forging gigs and gigging fish from master blacksmith Joe Hastings at the Museum of Art and Archaeology. Not an opportunity that comes up every day. Then from 5 till 7 p.m., there is an opening reception at the Mont Mini Gallery at the Boone County History and Culture Centre for their new art exhibit, Small Art, Big Stories. That's a free event and open to all. And if you're looking for theatre this weekend, you are totally spoilt for choice. This is the opening weekend for the Columbia Entertainment Company's production of the musical comedy Hairspray. That show starts at 7.30 and tickets are $14. At Talking Horse Theatre, this is the final weekend for the production of their dramatic play, Boy. The show is on tonight and tomorrow at 7.30, plus there is a final 2pm matinee on Sunday and tickets are $15. In Jefferson City, the Abbott-inspired musical Mamma Mia is in in the middle of its three-week run at Capital City Productions, this is a mostly sold-out show, but some new dates were added, so check their website to see what is still available. At the Warehouse Theatre at Stevens College tonight, their Summer Theatre Institute program continues with a night of Commedia dell'arte in a show called A Faction of Fools. The show starts at 7.30, and like all the Summer Theatre Institute shows, it is totally free to attend and open to everyone. At Maplewood Barn, their production of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet is in its final weekend. Tickets are $10 and the show starts at 8. In Macon, the Maples Rep Company's production of the musical comedy The Full Monty has just commenced its run. Tickets cost from $24. And at the Lyceum Theatre in Ararock, their first production of the season continues. Roger and Hammerstein's Cinderella and tickets start at $17. And at Cosmo Park, it's their monthly Movies in the Park tonight where they'll be showing Ferdinand starting at 8.45. At the Boone County History and Culture Centre, local literary legend William Least Heat Moon is this month's Meet the Author personality. He'll be talking about his next book at 10.30 tomorrow morning, and that is a free event. Tomorrow afternoon from 1 till 2pm at Skylark Bookshop is the return of their Drag Queen Storytime. It was a sellout show, full house the first time around, so that's fun. That's free to attend. The Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Hot Summer Nights has a concert of Vorjak and Brahms at the Missouri Theatre at 7.30 tomorrow night, featuring the young 
Young, rising star cellist Lucas Goodman. Tickets are $35. And at the Blue Note, the Jane Doe Review takes to the stage for a journey of women's music through the decades, performed by an all-female ensemble making out, made up of singers and musicians from a host of local bands. If it's anything like last year, it is going to be huge. The show starts at 8 and tickets are $10 with all proceeds going to support Safe Passage, a non-profit organization that provides help for victims of domestic and sexual violence. Sunday evening, the Missouri Symphony Orchestra's Hot Summer Nights performs a free community concert at Shelter Gardens at 7pm. And at Rose Park, the Summerfest concert series continues with sister duo Larkin Poe playing American roots and blues music, supported by Columbia's own sister duo, the Bernie Sisters. On Monday night, Hot Summer Nights resident opera artists will present a program of mostly Mozart at Broadway Christian Church. The concert starts at 7 and tickets are $15. At the University of Missouri's Studio 4, their production of the children's play Corduroy opens next Wednesday, Wednesday and continues through next weekend. The Wednesday matinee performance is already sold out, but tickets are still available for all the 6pm evening performances and tickets are 16 for adults and 10 for children. At Skylark Bookshop next Wednesday, Columbia author Jill Orr launches her new book, The Ugly Truth, the third instalment in her Riley Ellison mystery novels. That event is from 6 till 8. At Cosmo Park, the city's family fun fest is from 6 till 8 next Wednesday and this month the theme is Explore Outdoors. And at the Missouri Theatre, Hot Summer Nights presents Around the World in 18 minutes. A free family concert which includes their parade of semiconductors, a children's costume contest and the instrument petting zoo. That concert starts at 7pm next Wednesday. And finally, next Thursday, the Missouri Historic Costumes and Textile Collection has the opening for a new exhibit called Arts and Crafts Design Reforms. This is a free event. It's at Gwynn Lounge in Gwynn Hall and it starts at 4.30. You have been listening to Speaking of the Arts at 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia with me, Diana Moxon and my good friend and sound engineer Mike Hagan. We'll be back next week with more news, views and interviews on the arts in mid-Missouri. Stay arty, Columbia.